I think we need somebody there now to do the job, and let's get on with it. Yeah, let's get on with it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. No, I'm not. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Oh, maybe a little. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. With From you. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and blanketing the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation. Radio or not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and many more, including Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, if not you, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. Yes, it is another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. There is a new report finding that hate is on the rise in these United States, you don't say. That, after several years of a decline in the number of hate groups around the U.S., but, sadly, 2015 saw a disturbing reversal of that trend. We will speak with the author of that new report a little bit later this hour, to learn about the uh, the disturbing new trend, frankly, and what the possible explanations are for it. I was going to say I'd give you one guess, but, uh, well, we'll see. We'll get to that uh, in a little bit. Uh, something just impossible to hate would be Desi Doyen. Oh, and thanks the Green... for saying so. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> and the Green News Report. Uh, we will have one of them a little bit later with uh, a whole bunch of news, including uh, Obama. Uh, sort of bashing the uh, GOP presidential candidates concerning their denial, their climate denial, and how that is affecting the rest of the world and the ability for the U.S. to work with the rest of the world. Also, a new study that finds uh, air pollution kills 6 million, pe- 6 million people, Desi Doyen, a year? Really? Really. 6 million people a year Thanks, killed by... Thanks, fossil fuels. Yeah, killed by air pollution. Uh, also, and this is huge, but th- this kind of... <laughs> risks becoming not quite as huge because this happens every month at this point. January 2016 was the hottest January on record. Yep, and and there's more. Yeah, and there's more to that. We'll we'll get to that. Also, West Virginia is now flatter, flatter, less Mountainous. mountainous than ever before thanks to coal mining. We will explain that and... 
the good news that uh, the renewable energy revolution is happening way faster than anyone predicted. So all of that in our Green News report, which I should note because we didn't even have time to during the report, this Green News report is our seventh anniversary. I know. We've been have, doing this since yeah. 2009. Connecting the climate change dots like no one ever has, I think, uh, certainly not in uh, in the corporate media, for just about longer than anyone else in, in the media, the corporate media, or the alternate media, frankly. This is our 670th episode. Oh, my God. <laughs> do you feel really? tired? I do. <laughs> of the Green News Report. but uh, 670. Yes, Dang. 670. So happy anniversary to you, Desiree. Thank you. You too. Uh, and, uh, and my thanks again, as ever, to those who help us continue to do what we do by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us uh, celebrate things like that, our seventh anniversary. Speaking of anniversaries, happy anniversary, Justice Kennedy. Yes, on this day in 1988, Anthony Kennedy was sworn in as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court after a Democratic-controlled U.S. Senate approved Republican presidential Ronald, President Ronald Reagan's Nominee to the Supreme Court, uh, Anthony Kennedy, by a 97 to 0 margin during an election year. I, I know we've talked about it before, but I have a feeling we're going to have to continue talking about that. Continue uh, mentioning that 97 to nothing approval for Anthony Kennedy by a Democratic controlled U.S. Senate back in 1988 on this day. In, in an election year. In an election year. Speaking of. Reagan appointees, Sandra Day O'Connor, the now 85-year-old retired Supreme Court justice appointed by President Ronald Reagan, said on Wednesday that President Barack Obama should get to name the replacement for the late Justice Antonin Scalia. I can't believe that we have to go to a, a former Supreme Court justice. And we haven't yet heard from the current Supreme Court justices, by the way. I suspect John Roberts may have an opinion about this before all is said and done. But in any event, former Supreme Court Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor said that, uh, yes, indeed, Barack Obama should be allowed to uh, uh, appoint the next Supreme Court Justice. This was an interview with a Fox affiliate in Phoenix where O'Connor disagreed with the Republican arguments that the next president and that the next president following Obama, whoever that may be, uh, should get to fill the high court vacancy. And President Obama, for some strange reason, never heard of before in, in the entire history of our country, that he should not. So when you hear, uh, say, one side saying that they'd like to wait till the next president is in office to appoint a justice, what do you think about that? I don't agree. I think we need somebody there now to do the job, and let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. Well, there you have it. Uh, O'Connor, of course, <clears throat> was appointed in 1981. She stepped down uh, in 2006 to care for her ailing husband. She was replaced by... Justice Samuel Alito. Uh, a Baltimore Sun op-ed piece, by the way, uh, earlier this week, argued that uh, Obama should bring Sandra Day O'Connor out of retirement and put her back on the court. Well, I don't, I don't what? know what. Yeah, well, it doesn't make any sense. Well, the sense that it makes is that Republicans would have a very, very difficult time not approving Sandra Day O'Connor. 
it seems to me. Uh, in any event, yeah, uh, that's that's not going to happen. Uh, we've been speaking this week uh, about the upcoming uh, 100% unverifiable uh, primary elections that will be held in South Carolina. The Republicans uh, this Saturday, the Democrats uh, one Saturday later on 100% unverifiable touchscreens made by uh, ESNS, a company called private company called ESNS. Uh, their touchscreen machines are called iVotronics. They have failed election after election after election. But the South Carolina uh, officials hate their voters so much they are forcing them once again to use these horrible machines in the South Carolina primary uh, this week. The Republicans first on Saturday, and I mentioned how Alvin Green, this guy who no one had ever heard of back in 2010, a 32-year-old man with no job, who had done no campaigning, who had no campaign website, no cell phone, no nothing, how he somehow on these machines was named the winner of the 2010 election for uh, the primary election for the Democratic U.S. Senate nomination. Incredibly. And he went on, and of course, what a shock he went on to lose in the general election to the Republican there. But uh, these same machines are still in use. Over at uh, Daily Coast, commenting on our show yesterday when I went into detail on uh, on Alvin Green, Humai29 said, uh, without getting into the hacking theory, Alvin Green could not have won in 2010, and yet he did. So... By definition, either the machines screwed up or were screwed up. Screwed up by someone, I, I suppose, uh, whom I is saying here. Those are the only possibilities. Either way, it implies that we must have a paper ballot for each voter to discover why impossible voting results happen as they do sometimes. For instance... Uh, this uh, whom I, I don't know if it's a guy or a girl, but whom I continued. For instance, the conservative Texas state Supreme Court candidate Steve Smith. Oh, and I'm so glad they brought this up because I had forgotten about this one. Steve Smith, who had pulled 74 percent and 65 percent in his first two elections in 2002 and 2004 in Winkler County, Texas, who then received Zero, that's right, zero votes in Winkler County in his third try at office in 2006. Or the 20,000 votes, he goes on to mention, the 20,000 votes for Al Gore that disappeared in Volusia County, Florida on election night 2000 and then reappeared an hour later. Well, Levin, that was Humai over at uh, Daily Coast responding to uh, yesterday's broadcast. Uh, well, Humai exaggerates a little bit there. Uh, it wasn't 20,000 votes that disappeared in Volusia County, Florida in 2000 for Al Gore. It was only 16,022 votes. And they didn't really disappear for Gore on election night. They just actually registered as negative 16,022 votes. And by the way, that was on paper ballots that were run through an optical scan computer made by a company called Global, which was immediately thereafter purchased by a company called Diebold. But as to Steve Smith, I'm glad he brought it up because I want to very quickly run. Yeah, that in fact did happen. And we covered it. Uh, it might have been exclusively. We had exclusive coverage because uh, Steve Smith, again, a conservative Republican, a former Texas Supreme Court justice at the time back in 2006 on the March 7th primary in Texas. Uh, they came to us for uh, at Bradblog.com for some advice and help on this. Um 
He ran for uh, state Supreme Court place two is what it was called, the seat on the uh, Texas Supreme Court. He ran in the Republican primary against an opponent who was backed by then Texas Republican Governor Rick Perry and the Bush family. And they filed an official election contest after that 2006 election. All kinds of problems were found on those machines, including ESNS iVotronics, Election Systems and Software Inc. is what ESNS stands for. The um, the uh, ESNS and Heart Inner Civic were then and still are the major vendors across the state of Texas. And uh, a statement from the time uh, that we received at Bradblog.com we reported on had detailed a number of the campaign's initial findings, including mysterious totals in Smith's home, uh, home county of Tarrant County in Texas, where officials had admitted some 100,000 votes were incorrectly added to the reported results on election night. Well, that's it. Just 100,000 extra votes. Uh, Smith had otherwise outperformed his statewide average. This is from our report back in uh, March of 2006. Uh, had outperformed his statewide average in Tarrant County during the 2004 election by 13%. But that year, his campaign reports, he had for some reason underperformed the statewide results by 23%. But as, uh, as whom I noted, uh, as we reported at the time, one of the most puzzling numbers was in Winkler County, which went for Smith in, uh, in, in 2002 by 74%. He won that uh, small county, Winkler County, 260 to 92. And then in 2004, he also won the county by 65 percent. The totals were 468 to 249 in 2004. But in 2006, <clears throat> Smith lost 273 to zero. Yes, a 100% margin is how he lost in Winkler County. He received zero votes. Do you believe that? Well, that was what the results were from the uh, electronic, unverifiable machines in Winkler County at the time. They contested uh, that election, by the way, but they had to eventually drop their contest because uh, Texas would not allow them to look at the machines, and besides, they had to uh, uh, have the, the contest and the trial and everything else in such a short period before the election would be certified that they said it was simply impossible, that they could not do a forensic investigation of all these electronic machines in that incredibly short time before uh, t Texas had to certify its results. So that never happened. But uh, the numbers did happen, and they are amazing. All right, one quick point before we get to a, a break here. Uh, the Sanders uh, folks are concerned about what could happen in Nevada, and rightfully so. Not just uh, the Sanders camp should be worried. The uh, Hillary Clinton camp should be worried. Every candidate and all of their supporters should be worried about results every time because... It is public oversight at the precincts, at the, uh, the, the, the primary voting sites or at the caucus sites. It is oversight by the citizenry that is necessary to ensure or at least to try to ensure that results are accurate. In South Carolina, there's not much you can do because they're un unverifiable touchscreen voting machines. But you can be there when the polls close in South Carolina and take photographs of the little tapes that, that print off of those electronic voting machines. 
they'll have numbers and certain results on them, uh, which could sometimes we find that they change when they're later, later reported by the county or the state. So that's one thing you can do. Be there at closing time and take photographs and tweet those out, text those out. There's an effort in Nevada by uh, the Sanders uh, supporters to film the caucus. They say if you are planning on attending the Nevada caucus, pledge, please pledge to film the proceedings by signing up here. And this is at filmthecaucus.com. Your videos will serve as an indisputable record in lieu of an accurate paper trail and will be posted to a public YouTube playlist. Uh, as a video observer, you will serve as an eyeball in the room. Sounds like a good idea to me. Whatever candidate you are supporting or opposing, uh, go to filmthecaucus.com uh, and uh, you can use the hashtag filmthecaucus. Uh, okay, finally, very quickly here, uh, this this new poll uh, out in South Carolina from uh, from PPP finds a lot of remarkable things amongst the remarkable things that it finds. Uh, only 36 percent of the Republican base in South Carolina is glad that the North won the Civil War. Just 36 percent of the Republican primary voting base in South Carolina are happy that the North won the Civil War. Amongst all of the uh, remaining candidates, the lowest uh, amount of support for the North winning the war is for guess who? Donald Trump. Just 24 percent of Donald Trump supporters in South Carolina are glad that the North won the war. Well, uh, I, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised, uh, especially in South Carolina with the shooting that happened there last year and uh, with what has become really the mainstreaming of hate with a mainstream Republican candidate for president of the United States calling Mexican immigrants rapists, calling for a ban on all Muslims entering the U.S., so uh, is hate on the rise? Well, the Southern Poverty Law Center says, yes, in fact, it is. And we will discuss that next with Mark Potok, author of their new report on uh, the year in hate. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Uh, Charleston, Chattanooga, Colorado Springs. 
In these towns and dozens of other communities around the nation, 2015 was a year marked by extraordinary violence from domestic extremists, a year of living dangerously. Anti-government militiamen, white supremacists, abortion foes, domestic Islamic radicals, neo-Nazis and lovers of the Confederate flag targeted police, government officials, Black churchgoers, Muslims, Jews, schoolchildren, Marines, abortion providers, members of the Black Lives protest movement, and even drug dealers. They laid plans to attack courthouses, banks, festivals, funerals, schools, mosques, churches, synagogues, clinics, water treatment plants, and power grids. They used firearms, bombs, C4 plastic explosives, knives and grenades, one of them, a murderous Klansman, was trying to build a death ray. Yes, a death ray. The armed violence was accompanied by rabid and often racist denunciations of Muslims, LGBT activists, and others. Incendiary rhetoric led by a number of mainstream political figures and amplified by a lowing herd of their enablers in the right-wing media. Reacting to demographic changes in the U.S., immigration, the legalization of same-sex marriage, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, and Islamic atrocities, these people fostered a sense of polarization and anger in this country that may be unmatched since the political upheavals of 1968. So writes Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center in his new report, The Year in Hate and Extremism. The number of hate and anti-government patriot groups grew last year, finds the report, and terrorist attacks and radical plots proliferated. Here now to talk about this rather remarkable report this year is Mark Potok, senior fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center and one of the country's uh, leading experts on the world of extremism. Mark is a former journalist, editor of the SPLC's award-winning quarterly journal, The Intelligence Report, and its investigative reports, including The Year in Hate and Extremism, which is an annual report tracking domestic hate groups within the U.S. As a journalist, Mark uh, covered the 1993 Waco siege, the rise of the militias, the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, and the trial of Timothy McVeigh, so he knows about what he speaks. Mark Potok, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Wow, that was quite an introduction. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you deserve it, sir. I've uh, followed your work for many years, and I'm really glad to finally get you on this program to talk about it all. Okay, what what does the uh, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center consider to be a hate group. In other words, how is that defined for purposes of your report and, and who you track throughout the year? Sure. What it is not uh, is uh, a description of groups uh, that engage in criminal violence or some kind of estimate we're making as to the potential for future violence or anything like that. It's strictly about ideology. Do these groups, uh, in their platform statements, on their websites, in the speeches or writings of their leaders, do they say that an entire group of human beings, by virtue of their class characteristics, are somehow less? Right? All white people are blue-eyed devils. All black people are, are criminals. All Muslims mm -hmm. are terrorists, whatever it may be. Uh, all gay men are, are child molesters. It's those kinds of statements uh, that really uh, define hate groups for us. And so in and of itself, uh, a hate group, as you define it, is not necessarily 
a violent uh, uh, group, but do you find a correlation between the number of uh, hate groups and the amount of uh, domestic violence that occurs as these groups uh, rise and fall in numbers? Well, probably only in the very roughest way. Mm -hmm. There have been uh, academic studies that show that fewer than 5% of hate crimes are carried out by members of actual organized hate groups. Mm. Uh, still, uh, obviously, the members of these groups uh, often are very violent, sometimes incredibly violent. Uh, but I think even more importantly, the groups provide a kind of milieu, a kind of permission-giving, a justification uh, for this violence. If you are the kind of person, like, say, Dylan Roof, uh, the Charleston, mm -hmm. uh, the author of the Charleston Massacre last June, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a sense, you're looking around for someone to tell you that it is okay to hate black people. Uh, and that's precisely what happened to Dylan Roof. Uh, he had uh, no interaction that is known of uh, at all with people in the white supremacist world or in any group at all. He simply went on the Internet, uh, discovered the website of the Council of Conservative Citizens, mm. which is the, the modern-day incarnation of the old White Citizens Council, uh, read about what was uh, alleged to be a gigantic wave uh, of black-on-white crime, uh, and decided that black people needed to die. And, and, so, yeah. you know, so they're really important. So, so the in this case, the Council of Conservative Citizens that you mentioned that he looked at, uh, are, is that group uh, counted amongst uh, oh, the hate yeah, groups? Oh, that, that's okay. a classic. Uh, you know, I mean, that is really directly uh, descended mm -hmm. from these groups, uh, the old White Citizens Council, right. which were formed uh, immediately after uh, 1954's uh, decision, Brown versus Board of Education, mm -hmm. in order to resist uh, school desegregation in the South. So you've got... Uh, Thurgood Marshall once famously called them the Uptown Clan. Yes, that's right. Uh, so you've got a group uh, like them who, who do count amongst your uh, uh, hate groups. You've got a guy like uh, uh, Dylan Roof down in uh, South Carolina. He's not a part of that group, but he looks to that group. He looks to that material, and you've got uh, people like him and others who might be considered lone wolves who are actually not members of these hate groups, but inspired by them. Is that fair That's to right. say? That's okay. right. And that really is the trend of the day. I, I mean, you know, lone wolves are not new. I mean, we've been mm -hmm. seeing the lone wolf phenomenon rise for some 30 years now. Uh, but we are getting more and more uh, really true lone wolves. What we used to see more of were people who were in, in and out of these groups who were in the milieu, mm -hmm. who read the magazines uh, or the tabloids and occasionally went to meetings and who eventually broke away and decided enough talk they need to do something now. Uh, the kind of newer version of the lone wolf phenomenon is Dylan Roof, uh, who really appears to have had no interaction at all mm -hmm. uh, with other people on the extreme right. Uh, he seems to have simply decided uh, that black people needed to die all on his own, and then uh, obviously uh, went into a church and murdered nine people. So it's a scary phenomenon, and also I should say that uh, it's one that is hard to capture. I mean, we count these groups every year, and, and uh, my latest report uh, reports that they're up by about 14 percent. Mm -hmm. But in a, a very real sense, that's an undercount as we see more and more of these people like Dylan Roof, who are of a certain age court that really lives uh, entirely on the Internet. So, you know, people who never read newspapers or magazines, who get all the information, uh, if that's the word for it, uh, about the world that they receive uh, electronically. Yeah, yeah, and you write in your report that the 2015 hate group count almost uh, almost certainly understates the true size of the American radical right because of, uh, I guess, their ability to sort of 
uh, hide on the Internet. And I, I think uh, the uh, Charleston shooter gives us a good example of that. All right. So what are the general numbers that we're looking at for uh, uh, in this report for the rise in these groups, specifically on the radical right in this year's report? Because looking at, I mean, the, the graph on the very first uh, page of this report is rather stunning. We are seeing a different uh, pattern that than we have ever seen. The sharpest rise it, it looks like your group has found in the past uh, almost twenty years since you've been uh, since you've been doing this annual count. Well, among hate groups, that's so. And and just for well, we've already defined hate groups, mm-hmm. but uh, the count went in twenty fourteen. Uh, from 784 to 892 groups in 2015. That's about a 14% rise, and that was a you know fairly significant rise. Uh, at the same time, we list a whole with a whole separate listing mm-hmm. uh, of groups, uh, so-called anti-government, quote-unquote, patriot groups. What most of us used to describe as militias back in the 1990s. These groups are a bit different. Uh, they're not mainly. Uh, animated by racism or anti-Semitism, that kind of thing, uh, although there's a fair amount of uh, those ideas within the patriot movement. Mainly what they're about uh, is the idea that the federal government is conspiring against the freedoms of, uh, you know, good liberty-loving Americans, uh, you know, is about mm-hmm. to seize all of our guns and impose martial law and ultimately join, you know, a world socialistic government called the New World Order and so on. Mm-hmm. In any case, so the patriot groups are a different critter in a sense, but they are very much uh, part of the radical right. There, uh, the growth we've seen uh, in recent years has sometimes been absolutely astounding. Uh, the patriot groups uh, diminished to just about 150 during the George W. Bush years from a high of about 850 during the Clinton years. Uh, but when Barack Obama was elected, they came roaring back in a just astounding way. Uh, there were 149 of those groups in 2008, 512 in 2009, 624 in 2010, 1,274 wow. in 2011, uh, and it peaked in 2012 at 1,360 groups. That's an 800% rise uh, in four years. Uh, they've dropped back now. Uh, to the point there are about 998 groups right now, according to our count, uh, which was uh, also 14 percent above last year. But in any case, uh, the number of groups overall is very, very high. Now, is it fair to include those groups, those, uh, as you described them, conspiracy-minded, anti-government patriot groups? Is it fair uh, to include those uh, those folks within the same uh, sort of categories, general, very general categories, uh, you know, that you've got the, the KKK and domestic Islamic uh, extremist groups, uh, or well, are these completely different uh, animals here, really? Yeah, well, they are a different animal, and they are not in the same list. Uh, the patriot list is not a subset of the hate group list. These are two entirely different things that, that we track, so we publish every year, uh, you know, uh, lists mm-hmm. uh, and analyses of both. Uh, types of groups. Good. Uh, but, you know, are patriot groups uh, on the political right, on the political radical right? Yes, I think without question. Uh, you know, they believe, uh, you know, what they believe is, is first of all, uh, there's a thick strain of, of uh, anti-Semitism and racism, mm. uh, but, you know, their ideas are essentially right-wing uh, in, in the mm-hmm. way they view what the government is doing. You know, they think the government, uh, is, would that it were so, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. wish that they think the government uh, you know, is the spearhead of an evil leftist conspiracy, 
circling the globe that will ultimately result in elite globalists uh, running the universe. Oh, running, oh, running like it, like it won't, Mark. Uh, what, what's the uh, uh, what? What do you attribute to the, the fall that we uh, pr- until this year? There was actually uh, a trend over the past several years of a fall in these uh, hate groups, and and uh, I don't know if that matches the uh, the movement of the patriot groups here, but there was actually a fall in these hate groups over the past uh, several years, and now this incredibly, I think, uh, at least compared to your previous numbers, incredibly sharp rise over one single year. Uh, so what do you attribute the fall and then this rise over the past year to? The fall, we think, was very much related uh, to the Dylan Roofs of the world. What we've seen is that more and more people uh, who are in, in their ideology on the extreme right uh, refusing or declining to actually join uh, kind of brick-and-mortar hate groups. Uh, I think, you know, one way of thinking about this is that uh, the cost, the kind of social cost of being discovered uh, belonging to one of these groups has grown pretty mm. much every year for the last 15 or 20. So, uh, you know, I think back to when Trent Lott uh, was found to have given several uh, fawning speeches to the Council of Conservative Citizens in, I think it was 1998. And he managed to survive uh, a fairly substantial scandal rather easily. Uh, much more recently, uh, Steve Scalise, uh, who was up for re-election as the House uh, Majority Whip, mm-hmm. uh, the Republican Party, uh, very nearly lost that job because it was discovered that he had given a speech some 12 years before uh, to a David Duke uh, group. Mm-hmm. Uh, he claimed he didn't know what it was. It seems fairly obvious that's not true. But uh, my real point <laughs> right. is, is that the cost has grown. Uh, increasingly, uh, many people are outed, not only by groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center, but there are all kinds of Antifa groups and so on that really specialize uh, in exposing people, uh, you know, who in their off hours are, uh, are, you know, racist skinheads or whatever it may be. Uh, and those people often lose jobs, uh, lose friends, lose girlfriends, lose families, and so on. So what I'm arguing is that that's happening at the same time that a certain age cohort, younger people generally, uh, really have come more and more to live uh, virtually exclusively on the Internet in terms of information. And so uh, what I'm saying is that there are more and more people that are uh, really impossible to count. We don't know how many there are, but it seems clear uh, that there are more and more people like Dylan Roof uh, or potential Dylan Roof. And since uh, so I think that that explains at least partly what the fall was. And, and 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 then of course the rise over the past year and let me wrap it into this question since uh, the uh, Charleston shootings have come up a number of times here when we see something like that uh in that case you had a, a radical uh, white supremacist who who wasn't a part of that uh, those groups, but he was clearly a, a radical white supremacist. Shoots up a historic African American church in hopes of starting a race war. Do those actions work uh, for or against that cause? In other words, does it actually end up helping or hurting the cause that that he was after? As you're able to to track it, looking at the data. Well, I think in the case of Roof, it's pretty clear that he did not help the movement. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, uh, you know, he went in and slaughtered nine people who had, you know, who were very difficult, even in the most rabid white supremacist mind, to connect to, uh, you know, anti-white hatred or black crime or anything like that, right? I mean, these were, uh, you know, quiet, peaceful people in the middle of a Bible study. 
I think also the reaction uh, of the uh, relatives of the survivors afterwards, very many of them uh, very quickly saying they forgave the killers and so on, um, you know, for better or for worse, uh, really did tug at a lot of people's heartstrings mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Uh, so, and what really happened in the aftermath of the Charleston massacre was, uh, in addition to the essentially universal condemnation of what had happened, uh, there was this very sharp uh, backlash against the Confederate battle flag. Mm-hmm. And that went on for several months, especially across the Deep South, where a lot of Confederate battle flags were taken down. They were removed from the Capitol grounds, uh, both in Alabama, where I am, and in South Carolina, where the massacre occurred. But there were many other things uh, done as well. Statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest taken down in Memphis. Uh, Forrest was the first uh, national grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan mm-hmm. and so on. So, uh, you know, it provoked a very strong movement against these Confederate symbols. On the other hand, uh, that in turn provoked a backlash from the extreme right. We saw we actually counted 364 Confederate battle flag rallies, rallies in favor of the flag uh, in the aftermath of Charleston. So uh, it went in both directions, uh, in a sense, but I think probably Ruth's massacre uh, damaged the radical right more than it inspired. And yet there is this sharp spike in hate groups uh, from where it had fallen. We're still not you know, anywhere near the, the peak that we saw back in uh, 2010, 2011. Uh, but there was a sharp spike. Uh, so to what do, it, do you attribute that well, particular spike over the some- past year? Some of the causes are causes that have been under, you know, we've talked about already, and you mentioned a number of them, and when you read my introduction to the year in Hague, my first uh, few paragraphs, um, you know, uh, I, I think, but I think probably the unique thing that happened in the last year uh, was the just astounding uh, extent to which people like Donald Trump were willing uh, to directly inject uh, really right-wing extremist poison into the political mainstream. Uh, you know, some of the things uh, Trump has said, uh, we really haven't seen the likes of, at least at that level in politics, in many, many decades. Uh, you know, in a sense, he's comparable, I suppose, to George Wallace, uh, who is willing to say similar things, although even Wallace tended to be more careful uh, than Trump in what he said. But, you know, we have this guy, Trump, who's perfectly willing mm-hmm. uh, to, for instance, uh, retweet uh, a neo-Nazis' uh, absolutely false claims uh, about white people being murdered in overwhelming numbers by black people, uh, that kind of thing. And, so and, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is that yeah. these politicians, uh, not to mention the whole right-wing press and sort of punditocracy, but especially the leading politicians, the ones who are always on national television, uh, have really uh, ratcheted the whole thing up. And I think that that has some kind of indirect effect on these groups. It helps them to grow. They seem more normal to people. They don't seem quite as far out. Uh, you know, after all, if Donald Trump thinks, uh, you know, Muslims shouldn't be allowed into this country, uh, you know, what's wrong with joining a group that says, uh, you know, Muslims are involved in a conspiracy to destroy the rest of us? And, and yet your, your report finds that the, the hardest core sectors of the white supremacist movement, the white nationals, the neo-Nazis, the racist skinheads, they actually declined somewhat over the past year. Uh, how, how do we explain that in relationship well, to Donald Trump? Well, I think we Trump? may be seeing increasing numbers of them just as serious as they were before, but less willing to be on the radar. Uh, you know, there's absolutely no doubt it's not only the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center mm-hmm. and other watchdog organizations that watch these forums uh, 
uh, and websites and so on. Uh, law enforcement does as well. So I think that very likely uh, growing numbers of those people are leaving the kind of public scene uh, and essentially going off the grid. And, and, uh, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm speaking with, uh, by the way, Mark Potok uh, of the Southern Poverty Law Center about uh, their new report, The Year in Hate and Extremism. Uh, on the opposite end of the political spectrum, uh, you, you write black separatists. Uh, hate groups grew from 113 chapters in 2014 to 180 last year. Now, to be clear, because I think it's important to be clear, these black separatist hate groups you're talking about, this is not the Black Lives Matter movement, as some in the media have tried to portray that movement. Uh, Correct? So let let me let you speak to that. They're entirely different. Right. Uh, You know, the Black Lives Matter movement is a genuine uh, civil rights movement. Uh, the groups we're talking about are groups like the Nation of Islam and the new Black Panther Party, as opposed to the original Black Panther Party, uh, and a large number of smaller ones. And these are groups that are not only really uh, uh, violently and uh, ideologically anti-white, they are anti-Semitic, uh, and they are anti-gay. Um, and, and those, but the reality is, is that those groups... Uh, grew really in the same way or uh, deriving from the same events uh, that uh, the Black Lives Matter and similar movements grew on. In other words, all of the attention uh, paid in the public square over the last year or two uh, to police violence uh, directed at black men uh, certainly has uh, obviously helped Black Lives Matter uh, grow, but it has also helped these uh, very uh, vicious anti-white uh, groups like uh, the new Black Panther Party expand. Uh, we've talked about it. We've got just a few more minutes here with Mark Potok. We've talked about it uh, before on this program, but from someone who studies these uh, the actual numbers here, when we see all of this uh, fear stoked about ISIS and the threat of radical Islamic terrorism, uh, can you offer us some perspective as to the actual threat posed to Americans by domestic Islamic terrorism versus all of the other types of uh, domestic terrorism. I'm just, you know, drawn, thinking back, for example, uh, to the Colorado Springs uh, uh, shooting not many months ago. It seems that the media has all but forgotten that it was a radical right-wing domestic extremist in Colorado Springs who shot up a Planned Parenthood facility, and yet we're still talking uh, and hearing about uh, the San Bernardino shooting. So can you give us just some rough comparison of the numbers, uh, the way these things go, the way the, the threats compare sure. to each other? Sure. Well, first off, let me say that, you know, I don't want to diminish in any way uh, the very, very real Islamist uh, threat, the uh, threat from uh, jihadist uh, extremists. Uh, you know, after mm-hmm. all, something like 3,000 Americans were murdered on a single day in 2001. Mm-hmm. That said, though, uh, there have been serious studies uh, that look at the number of victims of uh, various kinds of political violence in this country. And until, until, in fact, San Bernardino, the number was skewed very heavily towards uh, radical right-wing killers as opposed to jihadist killers in this country. We're talking about domestic terrorism. Uh, after San Bernardino's, the numbers came much closer. I think it's something like 47 people murdered by uh, white supremacists in political attacks versus 44 uh, in jihadist attacks. But the point is not that uh, so much one is a larger threat than the other, but they are both very real and looming threats. And I, I don't think I'm telling anybody uh, anything they don't know when I say there has been a very strong tendency on the part of the government uh, 
to kind of uh, not pay that much attention uh, to political violence from the extreme right. Uh, I mean, you know, after Charleston, uh, this is something that still amazes me, mm-hmm. uh, the head of the FBI said that, in his opinion, Charleston was not a terrorist act. Uh, and yet, as you pointed out mm-hmm. earlier uh, in our talk, uh, Dylan Roof explicitly carried out that mass murder sure. uh, in order to start a quote-unquote race war. Uh, you know, how that doesn't qualify as, as terrorism or domestic terrorism is quite beyond me. But in any case, uh, you know, these are two very real threats. Uh, and I just think that it is incumbent uh, on us to understand them both. Okay, uh, uh, two quick questions here, both impossibly large to answer in a short amount of time, but I'm going to make you do it anyway, Mark. Uh, in, uh, in 1995, uh, your report finds that uh, 41% thought racism was a big problem. In uh, That number dropped to 28% in 2011, has now risen to 49% again. How does the effect of who is in the White House affect these numbers? I guess Republican versus Democratic, and uh, though we've got a very small sample size, uh, black presidents versus not black presidents. What's the? Do you see a direct effect on who is in the White House at any given time? Well, look, I mean, at the time that Obama was first elected, November of 2008, uh, I think the vast, vast majority of Americans of all races thought it was a great moment. Uh, you know, we had sort of, or so it was thought briefly, uh, laid our demons to rest. Uh, you know, this age-old uh, problem of racism, this original sin of American society. Uh, and yet even then, even right at the beginning, we had a sense or a hint of what was coming in that there was quite a backlash uh, in terms of localized violence immediately after Obama was elected. In any event, the surprise was that, yes, for a short while, a few years, uh, things seemed to get better. Things seemed to people seemed to feel uh, that this was not so much of a problem anymore. You know, the United States had changed. Uh, but as Obama, you know, was more and more attacked as the other, as a person who was supposedly a secret Muslim mm-hmm. or a secret Kenyan or a sec- secretly the Antichrist, uh, as Obama was tied more and more tightly to those kinds of ideas by the political right, uh, I think what we've seen happen is just the opposite. Uh, racism going back up, and in particular, anti-black racism among whites. Uh, and I think that, uh, in fact, uh, that has been uh, part of the response among some whites in this country to the rise of Black Lives Matters as, w- as well, the, this idea that somehow it's not true, uh, that the white America is being bamboozled, uh, that these are really all criminal thugs, and you know they kind of deserve to die in some sense. Which is uh, brings me to that last question, because uh, why are white people so angry? And I know that's a strange question, but, you know, following things like Black Lives Matter, uh, move the, the rise of that movement, the legalization of same sex marriage and so forth. Your report writes that a lot of this is in response to that. But in truth, it seems like little of that directly affects these people who are so angry. So is the idea that something is being taken away from them, is that being stoked by these groups? Uh, If so, what is it? What is being taken away from them? The idea of of dominance somehow in the culture? I mean, their white privilege is being taken away from them. You know, we saw that there are, believe it or not, some uh, fairly serious thinkers on the extreme right. Uh, And one man in particular, Wilmot Robertson, wrote, I believe this was back in 1973, uh, a kind of watershed book called The Dispossession of the Majority. 
So that is the idea that's current out there. Uh, we, majority white people, are, are they're taking things away from us. They're taking our world away from us. Uh, and it is certainly true that uh, especially the white working class is in uh, considerably worse shape than it was 20 years ago. Uh, you know, wages are real wages are falling, income inequality is rising for the white working class as well as other people. And all of those things, those kinds of things are worse uh, in most cases for minorities, uh, but it uh, stokes rage uh, on the part of whites who feel that this is somehow part of their birthright. Uh, and not only that, that there's an enemy, a villain, the people who are not white, uh, who are taking this all away from us. Mm. So I, I think that's uh, essentially what is happening it's, out there. It's so bizarre. It's this this hate and this fear of uh, of really ghosts and demons. You know, when the, when the uh, same-sex marriage uh, ruling came down, it was so bizarre to see people so angry about that as if they were going to have to get divorced from their wife and marry a gay person. Nothing was being... And that was the claim at the yeah. time, right? I mean, yes. this will destroy marriage, heterosexual marriage. Right. I, I mean, yeah. you know, in, in one sense, I understand, and, and I don't excuse it, certainly the, the black separatist movement, but I understand they're seeing videos of people actually being gunned down in the streets, uh, whereas the anger coming from the right, uh, you know, the, these white right-wingers, I don't even, I can't even wrap my brain around where it no, comes. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's fantastic, and that is not true of what's driving uh, the black separatist groups. Uh, you're right. I mean, there are real things out there, obviously, uh, all around us. Uh, and the vast or an awful lot of what uh, white hate groups uh, and individuals are angry about uh, is a fantasy or a kind of nightmare. You know, on the other hand, as, as we said in the course of this conversation, there really are uh, major social changes happening. Uh, and it is not impossible or really that difficult to imagine how a certain person of a certain age, especially, uh, might feel that this is somehow not the country they grew up in. Yeah. The country is changing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the bottom line, though, is that, uh, certainly in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, is that uh, we're going ultimately to a better place, not right. a worse one. Yeah, I, I hope, yeah, as, as Antonin Scalia said when he was asked about the uh, Bush v. Gore decision, uh, get over it. I would say that. That same thing uh, to some of these people. The world is changing. Yeah, get over it. And at the same time, welcome to it. Uh, Mark Potok, Senior Fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, check out his report on the year in hate and extremism. As always, a, a valuable uh, yardstick each and every year for almost 20 years now. Check out the work at splcenter.org. Mark Potok, great talking to you, sir. Hope to do it again in the near future. A real pleasure. I look forward to it. You bet. All right, a quick break, and we are back with our seventh anniversary Green News Report right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. We have been stopping the world and melting for Desi Doyen and her Green News report for now seven, seven years. Crazy, Desi isn't Doyen. it? Desi Doyen, yes it is. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And yes, this is our uh, seventh anniversary episode of the Green News report and our 670th total. Aren't you exhausted by now? I am. Haven't you saved the world by now? Uh, I wish I had, but no. Failed again. Oh well, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. 
They're all denying climate change. I think that's troubling to the international community. President Obama says the rest of the world is disturbed by our Republican candidates. So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. Air pollution kills nearly six million people a year. January 2016 was the hottest January on record. West Virginia is now 40 percent flatter thanks to coal mining. Plus, we've seen some kind of major changes to to the U.S. energy mix. And all at the same time, the U.S. economy has been growing. The renewable energy revolution is happening faster than anyone predicted. All of those revolutions and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The other countries around the world, they kind of count on the United States being on the side of science. Well, that was their first mistake, wasn't it? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know that folks on the East Coast where it has been really, really, really cold lately probably get crazy when they hear these type of stories, but we got another heat record for January. Yep, January 2016 just clocked in at the hottest January ever recorded for the planet. That's according to the latest data from NASA. Some parts of the Arctic were 23 degrees Fahrenheit, 23 degrees above normal. Amazing. January 2016 also broke the record for record breaking. It broke the previous January record by the biggest margin of any month ever recorded. In other words, no other month has jumped this much. 2015 was the hottest year on record, and we're now on track for 2016 to be the third straight year in a row of hottest years on record, and that's never happened before. Don't tell the Republican candidates. Well, speaking of the Republican candidates, that's what President Obama was doing at a summit of Asia-Pacific leaders on Tuesday in California. A reporter asked President Obama how his foreign counterparts are viewing the unusual 2016 Republican presidential primary campaign. Campaign. Obama said many in the international community are concerned about the Republicans' climate science denial. He said the rest of the world counts on the U.S. to lead the way. Because they know that if the United States does not act on big problems in smart ways, nobody will. There's not a single candidate in the Republican primary that thinks we should do anything about climate change, that thinks it's serious. Well, that's a problem. The rest of the world looks at that and they says, how can that be? How can that be? Oh, yeah. The fossil fuel companies fund those Republican candidates and they're getting their money's worth. Meanwhile, burning fossil fuels isn't just causing climate change. It's an ongoing public health emergency. A new study finds air pollution kills nearly six million people around the world every year. That's according to the Global Burden of Disease Project. The primary cause of those nearly six million premature deaths each year is air pollution from power plants, factories, tailpipes, and indoor cooking fires where people don't have electricity. More than three million of those premature deaths are in China and India. Here in the U.S., a new study finds that coal mining has actually made West Virginia flatter. 
40% flatter. A new study out of Duke University shows that the destructive mining technique called mountaintop removal coal mining, in which the tops of mountains are literally blown off and the debris pushed into valleys below, has actually made central Appalachia 40% flatter since the tops of the mountains are flattened and the valleys have been filled with up to 650 feet of debris. Wow. Uh, West Virginia? West Virginia. What John Denver called Mountain Mama? Yep. So much for that. But some good news. The renewable energy sector is growing in the United States a lot faster than anyone predicted even last year. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which tracks energy trends around the world, 2015 marked a turning point for American energy. Renewable energy sources made up two-thirds of all new electricity-generating capacity that was built in the U.S. last year. For the second year in a row, more renewable energy electricity plants were built than new fossil fuel plants, including natural gas. And U.S. wind energy leads the pack by far. So no matter what the Republican candidates are saying, the revolution is starting without them? So far, so good. Sounds good to me. For much more on that story and all of the others we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime from Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Country roads, take me home to the place I belong. West Virginia, Mountain Mama, take me home. Mountain Mama No More, West Virginia. Sorry about that, but I guess we needed all that coal. Uh, Hey, Des, before we go, I know you had one other thought on the uh, January 2016 as the hottest January January ever. Right, and the fact that it broke the margin record as uh, being Mm -hmm. so extreme in breaking from the average. There have been only three times when the monthly anomaly, the departure, was greater than one degree Celsius in recorded history, and all those three times happened last year. Imagine that. January also was the ninth consecutive record hot month. Other than that, the Republicans are totally right and there's nothing to worry about. Uh, Thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer, and congratulations on seven years of the Green News Report. Thanks. My thanks also to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to uh, my guest today, Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Of course, my thanks as ever to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of this program or any other, you can always download it for free at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review Make it easier for everyone else to find it. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the TheBradBlog. All right, Nicole Sandler will be in for me on the next thrilling episode of the Bradcast, but I will be back to cover all of the Nevada Democratic Caucus and South Carolina Republican primary fun thereafter. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.